Hello and welcome to Atari Bytes, the show where we take a bite out of the story within a classic Atari 2600 game and see if that story bites us back. My name is Bill, this is episode 15. Thanks for listening once again. Or for the first time, if this is your first episode, I especially welcome you. Here's a funny story. As I record this on a Wednesday evening, this is actually my second attempt to record episode 15. The first attempt started up the recording. I was clever and witty and insightful and dramatic. I sang show tunes. I bawled like a baby. I may be exaggerating a little about those last two things. But point is, the episode was going really good. My little counter thing on my computer was clicking along. I did the whole thing. I did the ad for Atari Bytes. I said, okay, go play some old games now. Bye-bye. I turned off the recording, checked the time. Yep, looks about right. Went to play the thing back, and suddenly, oh my god, where's the first half of this episode? The first half of the episode was just blank. Nothing but dead air until suddenly there's my voice at about the halfway mark. No idea why. I was not a happy guy. So, this is my second run tonight at trying to be spontaneous and witty and insightful and all those other things. And I might actually tear up this time. But, that's okay. We'll get through it. If you end up not liking this episode, don't write to me. Write to the fine folks at Audacity. I'm just kidding. Glitches happen all the time. We move on. Because that's how life works. So let's do some news. Oh, this is awesome. Over the weekend, this past weekend, as I record this, Pearl Mackey was named the new Doctor Who companion. Season 10, for those of you in the know, of Doctor Who won't premiere until way the hell next year, in 2017. But they're starting to put scripts together. They're starting to finally, maybe, sometime, start producing some episodes. And they just announced who the new companion is. It's this Pearl Mackey, who apparently has done a... who, who nobody knows anything about, uh, as far as TV watchers, because she really hasn't done a whole lot of TV. She's been on a few things, but nothing big. Uh, she's mostly been doing theater in England. Uh, and that's kind of her background. So she... this is good, because she doesn't come in with a, lot, a whole lot of baggage. Uh, no one really knows what to expect, and no one really has an opportunity to get upset, because... Again, they don't know what to expect. And her character's name is Bill, which, you know, I think I'm, uh, I have the knowledge to know is the best name ever. So that's very cool. I like the, the way they did the announcement, too. Instead of just a little press release or something, eh, Pearl Mackey, she's been in Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, a show I've never seen, but although I did read the book. The book is really good. So I would like to see this show someday. Uh, anyway, they could have just done a press release and said, yeah, this is the actress, this is who she is, here's your picture, go away now and, and watch uh, Coronation Street or something. But they didn't do that. Instead, we got like a teaser, like a tiny little movie, a little Doctor Who movie with uh, her and Peter Capaldi in a little scene with Daleks and stuff. So not only did we get to learn who this actress is and see her in action... We got a little tiny Doctor Who morsel 
the, the show star fans got thrown a bone to gnaw on for a little bit during this sort of year without Doctor Who, this sort of mini wilderness period that we find ourselves in. So that was all very cool in a very, I was going to say in a very nerdy sort of way, but really, you know, in 2016, the nerdy sort of way is just sort of the way, isn't it? I mean, we're I'm doing an Atari podcast for crying out loud. The nerds are kind of here and they've kind of won. Those guys in that Revenge of the Nerds movie 30 years ago were right, I guess. Anyway, Doctor Who's awesome, but we're not here to talk about Doctor Who. We're not going to get new episodes for like a year anyway. That gives us plenty of time to play some Atari games. And we've got a good one tonight. This week's game is Barnstorming. 1982 from Activision. I love me some Activision. The games always look great. The stuff on the screen looks like the stuff that's gonna that's supposed to be. I am excited about this game. Maybe not as excited as the first time I recorded this episode, but I'm still pretty excited. So let me pick up my paper manual here and just see what's up with Barnstorming. Alright, Barnstorming Basics. One, hook up your video game system. Follow the manufacturer's instructions. Two, with the power off, plug in the game cartridge. Three, turn the power on. I know some of you out there probably forget that step, but trust me, I used to make that mistake too. Atari games, way more fun if you turn the power on. But if you do that and no picture appears, check the connection of your game system to the TV, then repeat steps one through three. Four, plug in the left joystick controller. It's the only one you'll need. When playing, when playing, hold the controller with the red button at the upper left. My favorite instruction in any of these manuals is always when they tell you, hold the controller with the red button in the upper left. First of all, who the hell are they to tell you how to hold your controller? And secondly, do you really even need to be told that? Anyway, five, set both difficulty switches to B to begin. Full disclosure, in the field report segment of this episode, I'm not sure that I did that. So I may have been playing, you know, reckless, like the rebel that I was born to be. Six, select game with game select switch. Game one, which is what I played in my field report, hedgehopper, fly through 10 barns on a fixed course. Two. Crop Duster, fly through 15 barns on a fixed course. 3. Stunt Pilot, fly through 15 barns, fixed course, different than Game 2. Game 4. Flying Ace, fly through 25 barns, a new course each time you select Game 4. Step number 7 of Barnstorming Basics. The object of the game is to fly through a set number of barns in the shortest possible time, elapsed time indicated at top of screen. Number 8. Scoring. Each time you make it through a barn, your barn count number, upper left corner of screen, will decrease by one. If you miss a barn, your barn count will remain the same and you will have to fly further to reach an additional barn. When your barn count reaches zero, the game is ended. Nine. To take off, simply press the red button, which as we know will be in the upper left hand corner because you're obedient, and push the joystick up to climb. Number ten. Using the joystick. Once airborne, the red button acts as your throttle. Press it for greater speed, release it to slow down. To increase your altitude, push the joystick up, and to descend, pull the joystick down. Number 11. Difficulty switches. The left difficulty switch in the A position will lower the clearance heights of the barns. The B position is normal. The right difficulty switch in the A position will add more geese. The B position is normal. Good rule in life is you can never, ever have too many geese. Getting the feel of barnstorming by Activision. 
Just as in flying a real biplane, you'll need to get the feel of the controls. The better you get at adjusting your throttle and handling your joystick, the better your chances to become a flying ace. I played uh, Barnstorming several times now. Th- this wasn't a game I had as a kid, but I've gotten it since doing this podcast. So I played it a little bit. So I think when I'm going to do the air show next year, I'm just going to go out there and take one of the planes. Because apparently I have the feel of controls now, so it should be basically the same thing as flying a real plane. So I would suggest you watch your preferred news source sometime next spring to find out the fate of your favorite Atari podcaster. Anyway, what was I talking about? Oh, right. So, getting the feel of Barnstorm by Activision. You needn't worry about stalling out in midair. Your throttle is set to maintain a minimum speed even when you release the red button. The game is mastered by looking ahead and adjusting the controls to make the best speed. Fly through every barn and over every windmill, and avoid those pesky geese. Whenever you push the throttle, watch out for the geese. The best time is achieved by covering the course with the fewest possible corrections to your altitude, so precious seconds can be shoved, can be saved, shaved. So precious seconds can be shaved by flying just above the windmills and just below the opening of the barns. If you should misjudge and fly over a barn, your barn count will remain unchanged and the course will be extended until you can make up the missed barns and fly through the required number. Wouldn't it be nice if life was like that? You know, you forget your dentist appointment and he's like, no, okay, just come in later. Or um, you make a bad bet in a poker game and the dealer later is like, no, it's okay, here's your chips back. Just, uh, you know, try again. Wouldn't that be nice? Anyway, avoiding crashes with barn roofs barn interiors, weather vanes, windmills, and geese will really save time. Better slow down a little and avoid a crash than to lose time picking up speed from a dead stop. Oh, and then we have a picture of Steve Cartwright, designer of barnstorming. And he even gives us a little pep talk. Steve is, or at this point I suppose was, a senior designer at Activision. He was discovered by David Crane. Quote, There are two stages involved in mastering this game. After playing the game a few times, you'll begin to learn the course. By knowing what is coming up ahead, you can keep your biplane at full speed. But being able to fly through the barns and over the windmills is only the beginning. The real secret is in carefully navigating through the flocks of geese. With practice, it is possible to fly the course at full speed with no collisions. It has really been a great challenge designing my first game for Activision, and I'd particularly like to thank David Crane for his help in getting me off the ground. <laughs> That Steve Cartwright's a clever guy. P.S. Drop me a line. I'd love to hear about your daredevil exploits. You gotta know Steve Cartwright was committed to you when he tells you to drop a line. Back in the day, dropping a line was a serious commitment. There was no clicking on any websites or typing any emails and sending them off at 2 in the morning. If you wanted to drop somebody a line in the 80s, you had to go find a piece of paper and a pen, or maybe a typewriter, and, you know, God help you, you might need some carbon paper. So you write this letter, or you type it, then you gotta find an envelope, and you gotta lick the envelope, and you gotta lick the stamp, and you gotta write the address on the envelope, and you gotta go find a post office, and you gotta mail the thing. And then on Steve Cartwright's end, he's gotta go to his mailbox, or send his Atari Flunky to the mailbox. Atari Flunky being my other favorite game, by the way. And they gotta open the letters. You know, they gotta find something to open the letter with, and they gotta do something with the envelope, and they gotta read the letter, and then they gotta find something to do with the paper that the letter was printed on. It's a whole big thing. 
And, you know, don't get me started on them having to write back to you, for goodness sakes. So, back in the day, dropping a line, that meant something. We should think about that some more. Let's just not talk for a while and think about the significance, the, the fading cultural significance of dropping a line to somebody. Okay, that was fun. What should we do now? Oh, oh, oh. I was about to throw it over to my field report, but I gotta do one more thing first. To become a new favorite segment on this show. That's right. It's time for... Guess what I had for lunch? No, I'm just kidding. It's time for a history lesson. Barnstorming has cultural significance to America. Maybe other parts of the world, too. I'm not really sure. I did some research, but come on. I didn't do that much research. But it has some, some historical and cultural significance to the United States. See, during World War One, the U.S. built a crap ton of Curtis JN-4, or Jenny, biplanes. The airmen who fought in World War One were trained to fly in them. Then, once the war was over, the government sold off all these planes because they didn't need them anymore. It was the Great War, after all. They, well, they need planes for They're not going to go to war anymore after this. We're done, Right? Right? Anyway, so the war's over, and the government has all these planes to unload, so they just let anybody want one buy them. The pilots could buy their own planes if they wanted to. But here's the thing. When you own a plane, it sounds like a really good idea. Yeah, you know, it's a nice plane, I think I'll buy it. But the neighbors aren't necessarily keen on this idea. They don't necessarily want you to strafe their barbecue pit with machine gun fire. So these guys that bought these planes, and come on, you had to know it was mostly guys, they had to find something else to do with them. It wasn't bad enough the world that the government was unloading their planes. Once the war was over and the government didn't want planes anymore, a bunch of aircraft manufacturers went bust too, so they unloaded their planes for cheap also. Now, anybody who wanted one could get a plane for really not much money. Cheap prices combined with really lax federal aviation rules meant there was nothing to do but go out and teach yourself to walk on the wings of an airplane. Why the hell not? We were never going to have another war again, so life was awesome. People didn't just walk on the wings. They also you know, did tricks with the planes, and they used them sometimes for actual airplane-type things, like carrying mail or smuggling stuff. It's kind of like if Han and Chewie took a time off from smuggling to also walk around on top of the Millennium Falcon just before they made the jump to light speed. It's all perfectly safe. Here's a true but not true fact. Only one in six barnstormers ended up frozen in carbonite. So, getting into the barnstorming action in the 1920s was a no-brainer. And everybody did it. Men, women, and remember this was back in an era when women didn't get to do a whole lot, except basically have babies. But they were barnstormers too. In fact, in 1915, Catherine Stinson became the first woman in the world to perform a loop-the-loop. And she didn't even barf. I barfed just reading that fact on Wikipedia. But over the years... As time went on, barnstorming became this big thing. Increasing number of people got hurt. The government decided it should have maybe some sort of safety regulations and blah, 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 party buzzkill kind of stuff. And then the government even stopped selling jennies. Pilots had trouble making a living. And finally, by about 1941, the heyday of barnstorming was over. Oh, and there was another war that sort of bummed everybody out the second war to end all wars. Now, you know, 
2016 as I record this. All we've got left of Barnstormers now is that little clip in the opening theme credits for the 1980s TV action adventure The Fall Guy. I miss The Fall Guy. We miss you, Lee Majors. Anyway, thanks, Wikipedia. After this break, we take off for the fake friendly skies. Got my leather bomber jacket, my long white scarf with the fringy things, my pith helmet, and my beer goggles. Pretty sure that's all I need. Climbing into the cockpit of my Jenny, I signal to my mechanic, contact I shout, because I'm pretty sure that's what Snoopy always said to Woodstock before he went off to fight the Red Baron. So I'm sure it's historically accurate. Let's take off for the wild blue yonder. Geese, barn, windmill, Galloway goose, throttle, man I'm good, those engines purr, or hum, or whatever, oh, stupid windmill, I'm sure my non-existent 1920s insurance will pay for that. Five seconds. Woo! Back to you in the studio. Alright. My biplane has coasted in. Touched down gently on the runway. I returned Herb, the mechanic, to the straight back position. He gets a little nauseous when we fly. We've come to a full stop. It's a fun little game, isn't it? Oh, by the way, that pervasive little hum throughout that whole field report wasn't my recording. That's the sound of the game. Really, the only continuous noise in the thing is the sound of the engine, which is what you heard. There's no music. You get the engine noise, and when you bump into stuff, you get that little bumping noise. Even the geese don't honk. So, not a lot of audio to the game. Not a lot of complicated stuff to doing the game, to what you have to do in the game. But it's a good-looking game. It's an Activision game, so of course it looks good. And trying to finish this course, you know, better your time is kind of addicting. So, you know, I even like the play noises. So I do kind of like this game. It's a good time. Also, goddammit, I want to be in the prestigious Activision Flying Aces. What are the prestigious Activision Flying Aces, you asked? Well, my man Steve Cartwright can fill us in. If you beat a time of 33.3 seconds on game one, 51.0 seconds on game two, or 54.0 seconds on game 3, you can join our Activision Flying Aces. Just send us a picture of your television screen along with your name and address, and we will enroll you in this prestigious organization. That's the end of the description, by the way. I'm pretty sure if they had left the rest of that paragraph in, it would say, We will enroll you in this prestigious organization by wadding up your picture and throwing it 
in the waste paper basket for two reasons. One, they don't promise to send you anything. You're not getting a medal. You're not getting a certificate of completion. You're not giving, even getting uh, an official embossed, Atari embossed letter, sorry, Activision embossed letter from Mr. Cartwright himself. And number two, this is 1982, so there weren't a whole lot of those little blue recycling bins sitting around. So they just wadded your picture up and threw it in the garbage, I'm pretty sure. But still, it's the prestigious flying aces, and I'm not one of them. My little time of 55 seconds in that field report ain't going to cut it. Not that I'm bitter or anything. What was I talking about? Oh, yeah. Well, we have more important things to worry about than flying aces or self-esteem or avoiding crippling depression. We have a podcast to do. And on this podcast, we don't just look at how fun the game is or how awful the game is, looking at you, Amadar, episode 14. We look at the story within the game. I know this because I said it in the opening segment of this show. At least, I hope I did in this recording, because evidently I didn't say it in the first recording, according to Audacity. Not that I'm bitter about that either. Anyway, so we're looking at the story within the game of Barnstorming. And how do we analyze the story? Well, I'm glad you asked. Every story has five points, or five elements, that make up a plot, or make up a story. Level one is the introduction or the exposition. So you're laying the groundwork for what's going to happen in the story and who the characters are. Then you have the rising action where things are starting to cook and the story is moving towards coming to a head, towards hitting the climax. Then you have the climax, which is the peak of the story, where, you know, crap hits the fan. Once that happens, then you start moving towards the resolution of the story. But first you have the falling action, which is all the stuff in between the climax and the end of the story. And then you have the end of the story, which is the resolution, where things are all kind of tied up in a nice little package, hopefully. And things just kind of come to a conclusion. A denouement, if you like, and want to sound pretentious. So, those are the five elements of a plot. How do those apply to barnstorming? Well, like most of these Activision games, you don't get a whole narrative in the game. That's not how games were made back in the day. Games now, of course, for Xbox or PlayStation or whatever, are really just mini, not even mini, are really just movies with a lot of interactive elements to them, right? Whole movie scenes play out that you're not really even playing. You're just kind of watching what happens, and then you come in and do whatever you do in the game. That's not how they did games back then. Which means we have to do a lot of uh, extrapolating and guessing and drunken theorizing. So here's my thought for what we have with Barnstorming, right? It's 1920s, America, you're a daredevil, fly by the seat of your pants. Literally, you've tried flying naked before, but, you know, there are those geese. So that's just not a good idea. Devil may care kind of guy. So... Here's my thought. Here's the, what probably what this story of, of Barnstorming is. You are, oh, I don't know, Ray Gatsby, let's say, just to throw a name out there. And let's say you've got a brother, Jay, is his name, and he's living the high life uh, out on West Egg, Long Island. You guys growing up didn't have a lot of money, but he came into some money, and 
he's out there on Long Island, barely talks to you anymore. And you're out here left uh, alone working the county fair circuit for peanuts. The big comical circus kind of peanuts that are made out of some sort of industrial polymer, not actual peanuts. That's how far you've sunk in life. And that's sort of where the story starts. That's sort of the setup for the story, right? You're Ray Datsby, not at all bitter brother of Jay, out there doing your thing on the barnstorming circuit. Rising action. You're going to show them, man. The rest of the Gatsby's, and while you're at it, the Caraways, and the Buchanan's out there on Long Island, well, they can just suck it. By which I mean you're biplane dust. You'll show them. Today's show is going to be the bee's knees, brother. You get in your plane, and you take off literally rising over the windmills and over, or rather, through the barns, physically moving towards the mental breakthrough that will put you over the top, literally, by not crashing into a windmill, and figuratively, by sticking it to Jay. Here comes the climax. There it is now, just off the plane's starboard side. Or maybe it's the port side. I don't know, do planes have sides, like boats? Anyway, things are going great is what I'm saying. You're knocking off those barns. You're avoiding those geese. The end is in sight. Off the port side this time. Yeah, I'm doubling down on that nautical-aeronautical hybrid thing. Just go with it. So, you hit the peak. You're going to get that score. You're going to finish this circuit. You hit the climax. Now things are falling. I mean, they're... Literally, the action is falling because you've got a problem now. There's this weird glowing green light emanating from stupid Daisy Buchanan's dock over there on East Egg. Seriously, doesn't she ever turn that damn thing off? Sure, if on the screen the sketchy Atari graphics make that green light look kind of reddish, like maybe it's actually the sun, but you know it's her. Those old money rich people. Sure, go ahead, leave the lights on, why don't you? And the water too while you're at it. You want to get in my plane and throw rare works of art down on the heads of flappers that are walking home after a full night of flapping? You go right ahead. Yeah, you can't see the green light on your screen from that dock, but you know it's there. Oh yes, it's there. Anyway, what was I talking about? Right, so falling action. You're blinded by this light. You're moving towards the end. Probably literally, because right now, you're crashing. Stupid light, you can't see a thing. You're blinded by the light. You're blinded by the rage at the unfairness of the class system. Mostly, though, it's the light, because you can't see anything. Somehow, though, you manage to keep the plane aloft and get through that last barn. You're going to be a flying ace, bub. Your game is over. You made it. True, you're probably going to die anyway, because barnstorming is really dangerous, and at this point, in... American history, mostly unregulated. Also, you're probably penniless and have no insurance. Damn you, Buchanans! You know, Daisy is kind of cute, though. <laughs> so that's Barnstorming, friends. It's a fun game. It's a gripping story of Americana. I'll be waiting for my Pulitzer to show up. And I guess that's all I got to say about that. That's our show. But before we go, our friend Bill Kendrick from the XEGS podcast put on a fake mustache and somehow managed to sneak in here. So as long as he's here, 
you might as well tell us about the awesome Atari party happening out in Davis, California, uh, coming up in July. So, go for it, Bill. Hey, Bill. It's Bill Kendrick from the XCGS Cart by Cart podcast. I want to let you and your listeners know that I'm hosting my 8th annual Atari party this summer out here in Davis, California. That's near Sacramento and not far from the San Francisco Bay Area and Silicon Valley. It's free and will undoubtedly have at least one Atari 2600 set up. It's a one-day event on Saturday, July 30th. Visit newbreedsoftware.com slash Atari Party for more info. Thanks. Thanks, Bill. Cool name, by the way. Doctor Who, returning in 2017, Season 10. My thanks also to Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com for Creative Commons' use of his songs, Take a Chance, Reformat, and Pinball Spring. You can find Atari Bytes on a variety of podcatchers, and you do need to leave a review for us on iTunes. It helps the show rankings, and it helps your fellow human beings with ears find the show too. Email us your comments and questions and photos of smoked meats to ataribytes2016 at gmail.com. You can like the Atari Bytes Facebook page. You can follow us at Atari Bytes, A-T-A-R-I-B-Y-T-E-S, on Twitter, or follow me personally at Carnival of Glee. Oh, and don't forget, Atari Bytes has a Patreon page, if you're so inclined. And you can get cool merch at Zazzle.com. The thing with that is, uh, just type in Atari Bytes and you'll find uh, stuff with our show logo on it. You can also go to the Atari Bytes store. There's an Atari Bytes gift section, I think, but there's also my Atari Bytes store, which is actually capital A, capital B, underscore pod, underscore store, to find specifically Atari Bytes uh, podcast stuff. So check it out. And that's about it. So until next time, go play some old games. They've missed you.